0: Well, again, welcome back uh, as we continue our study in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 6. And perhaps before I, I, I uh, just start going back and looking at where it fits into the book and talk about where we're going, let's just read the text so we have it all in our minds and, and, and we can uh, uh, start from that from the very beginning. This is Romans chapter 6, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. What shall we say then? For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For in the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, please bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Okay, so we're here in Romans 6. Today we're going to be looking at these two phrases and their impact upon your life and mine. And it has to do with our relationship as believers to sin. And there are two things that are said in this passage, right? Number one, that we are dead to sin And number two, that we are free from sin. Now, those phrases can be very confusing. And so that's why we're going to try to come back and break them down um, and what that they actually are trying to say. But these are two statements that you will see in the chapter that God declares to be true of every believer in Jesus Christ. So where does chapter six fall in the flow of the book? This is the way my mind has felt all week. And so, hopefully, by the end, we'll see some of the, the con- confusion clear up, and it'll be more organized and make sense. Now, Mike started us off at the beginning of our study in the book of Romans with an outline. I, I tried to, there was part of it that I said, well, you know, I tried to tweak it, but you know, listen, I can't alliterate the way Mike does, and it's pretty pretty, pretty good uh, of an outline. And so I said, you know what, um, I'm going to leave it the way it is for our own memory, so we can stay cohesive together, right? But basically, Romans is a book expounding on the gospel. The good news from God to sinners like you and me of how we can be saved, rescued, delivered, transformed by the power of God in our lives. We can't do it ourselves. But how does God do it? That's what the whole book of Romans is about. And he spends 16 chapters doing it. But if you come back to chapter 1, he says... Right, Paul says from the very beginning concerning himself uh, that he was called by God to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. This This is what his whole life was about. He said, God called me, separated me to send me out for the purpose of expounding and sharing this gospel of God. That was verse 1. Then he gets down to verse 16 and he says, Listen, I am definitely not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But to everyone who believes. I would just like to challenge you this morning if you're hearing my voice. Have you believed this message of the gospel for yourself? Chapter 1 would go on to say that it's foolishness to those who are perishing. They can't understand how just hearing a message and believing it can actually transform not just your life, but your eternal destiny. But again, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that is what it's. Now, it goes on to say in the next verse that for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's our key phrase that we're going to see through this whole book. It's not just announcing good news, but in this good news, it actually reveals something about God. His righteousness. And it's because of that perfect righteousness that we have salvation to begin with. It's because, it's because of that that it continues its effect in us, through us, both now and into eternity. And so that's the phrase that's going to come up throughout the book. And so our outline, as we saw, in chapters 1 through 3, righteousness was demanded. This is where I tweaked Mike's a little bit. He said 1 through 5. But 1 through 3, righteousness was demanded. Like the song we sang a little bit ago, holiness is what he wanted from us, and we didn't have it. And so it resulted in condemnation. I thought this was a book of good news, right? Well... Thankfully, that's just the opening chapters, right? In chapters 4 and 5, righteousness is declared, right? Now, we don't just mean it was announced, hey, God is righteous. What, what we learn in chapters 4 and 5 is that because of what Christ has done, when we come to him and put our faith in him, he now takes this guilty sinner and declares us to be righteous before him. Miracle of miracles. How a holy God can do that. Not by doing a Jedi mind trick and just pretending it didn't happen, but maintaining his righteousness and holiness. It's amazing. That's what justification is all about. And we talked about that in chapters four and five. We'll summarize it again in a few minutes. This is where we are now. We're entering the next section of the book where righteousness is developed. All right. So this righteousness that was bestowed upon us or declared to be ours in chapters four and five. How does God do that? What is really happening that allows this to take place? That's what we're going to be studying in these next three chapters, right? Today, in chapter six, we're going to look at this thing called baptism and what it is and why that accomplishes what justification has declared for us and and it's effect on us, right? So we're going to come back to that in chapter 6. Chapter 7, uh, we're going to see the struggle in living it out. Chapter 8 comes back to how the Spirit so effectively keeps us even in our struggle and helps us to have victory. And uh, 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 then um, chapters 9 through 11, righteousness is defended. They say, well, if, if if this is going all to the Gentiles and to the whole world, what happened to the promises to Israel and has God been wrong in what he's done? And so he spends three chapters vindicating his righteousness in regards to Israel and his overall plan for the world. And then in chapters 12 through 16, we see uh, uh, how that righteousness is actually demonstrated as it transforms the believer through the rest of our lives. And this is the practical part where we see it in its living out now. Too many times we want to rush off to, is this where my pointer is? We want to rush off to this and just get the list of what do I need to do and try to do it. It doesn't work. We're cleaning up the outside, but we're mis- if, if that's our only method, then we're not going to see the transforming work from the inside that this justification and sanctification is meant to do. And so that's why we're coming back now to chapter 6 to kind of look at that. Now, i, I got some illustrations here. I said, okay... In chapters 1 through 3, this condemnation comes because we are dead in trespasses and sins. Remember we said that we have a new relationship with sin. So what was our old relationship so we can understand what he's bringing us into, right? Well, in chapters 1 through 3, we saw, okay, here we are. You and me, any other person on earth, we're actually guilty sinners. And because of that, we deserve to die with those sins. We can't remove them. And so if that's the state we stay in, this is what we have to look forward to, right? There's our sin. It's upon us. We haven't, we haven't received God's method of having it removed. And so the day comes where we die in those trespasses, in those sins, and now we're forever dead in those sins, right? Terrible plight. This is why Cicely's asking for prayer for her husband. He has rejected this truth for so long, and now he's in a desperate health crisis. And he's still not turning to Christ. And we just need to keep praying. Perhaps he will do this before it's too late, as well as everyone else that we know, right? But that's what it means to be dead in sin, dead in sin. Our sin is still upon us. We're still under its rule, and we will be condemned to death uh, with it. Now, chapters 4 and 5, we have this justification process where it says that Christ died for our sins. Even though we were ungodly, even though we were enemies, even though we were still without strength, separated from God because of this sin, it's still upon us. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. What does that look like? Okay, so here we are, our sinner walking through life. And our sin is on us. We're guilty before God, condemned. But now we hear about Christ, who because of that great love has gone to the cross for you and for me. And if you believe in Christ, you turn to him by faith, putting your trust in what he did there on the cross, as the Bible invites us to do, the Bible says now that God, Jesus takes our sin upon himself on the cross so that when he died, whoa, whoa, whoa. So that when he dies, he ends by saying what? Paid in full, it is finished, right? He has paid the penalty for the sin. The righteous judgment that was meant for us, he has now paid for. Because when we put our trust in Christ, our sin is nailed to his cross. Colossians talks about that, right? The certificate of debt that was against us has been nailed to his cross. Allowing us now to pass out of death into... a little slow on the thing. Pass out of death into life. And the Bible now calls us, miracle of miracles, this one who is a guilty sinner condemned before God. Now, when God looks at us, because we have come to Christ and our sin has been fully paid for and put on Christ's account and Christ's perfect record put on our account, God calls us righteous. That's what justification was. He declares us to be righteous, He calls us a saint. You can really freak people out by telling people, hey, I'm a saint. He's a saint. In our terminology in today's culture, that doesn't make sense to them because they're thinking, well, we've cleaned up our act. We're acting a certain way. But God says if you belong to Jesus Christ, his perfect record is put on your record, and God sees you as a saint, a holy one. And we're totally forgiven. The penalty of all those sins. This is what justification does. It's a legal thing. God as judge not just declares us not guilty, but he says that we are righteous in his sight. Amazing. That was where we were in chapters 4 and 5. Now, oh yes, I love this part in chapter 4. It says that he was raised because of our justification. How do we know if Jesus is still there in the grave that it's really taken place, that, 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 that this penalty that Jesus was dying when he was dying for our sins, that God accepted it? Yes, Jesus said, paid in full, it is finished, right? But the Bible tells us there at the end of chapter 4 that he was raised because of our justification. Because God accepted it and he has declared us, he came back out of the grave because Death had no more dominion over him. He paid for our sins, and therefore we were set free from that uh, from sin and death. So it, it's it's an amazing thing. All right. We don't mean to go backwards. Now we're here in chapters six through eight. This is where we're going to see in chapter six that we have been united with Christ. And this is the beautiful truth. That today's lesson hinges on if you are truly going to be dead to sin and free from sin, it is because you have experienced this union, this uniting with Christ that he talks about in this chapter. And to visualize that again, here's our sinner, And he's got his sin. But the Bible tells us Jesus died on the cross. And when he did, he was dying for sin, but also uh, the Bible says he died to sin. Now, what's going to happen here? Uh, when we want to put our trust in Christ, not only, as we said before, does he take our sin upon him, but the Bible says we ourselves become united with him, okay? So that when Christ dies, we die. When Christ raises from the dead, we've raised from the dead. So now we can live in newness of life just like Jesus. And so just as we were dead in our sin, the Bible tells us now in this chapter, we are dead to sin and free from sin. And uh, that is what is talked about and pictured in this baptism that the chapter talks about. And and, um, we're going to talk a lot more about that as well. So... That's our outline, dead to sin, free from sin, and I'm going to leave that for a little while. Before we just totally dive into chapter 6, I just want to say a few things. Key words in this chapter. We have been seeing this idea of grace many, many times in chapters 4 and 5, right? We've gone from his wrath and condemnation of sin to now we're talking about his grace that he's bestowed upon those who, uh, who are willing to receive it by putting their trust in Christ. And uh, we really should have given Jamel two weeks to talk about chapter 5 because chapters, verses 1 through 11 is so important that to pass over it too quickly would be a tragic, travesty but then not to have covered the second half is a travesty. And I, it's a lose-lose situation, right, Jamel? So, uh, so I'm just going to call him back up to finish chapter 5. No. Uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, but there are a few things that we ought to just recognize about that because the, the beginning of chapter 6 is a continuation of the flow of thought at the end of chapter 5, right? And so let's just take a sneak peek back, if we can, to chapter 5 to just cover where justification ended up, right? So he said, to be justified was to be declared righteous by God when we put our faith in Jesus. Verse 1 said, having then been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were enemies, now we have peace. Through whom also, verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I just want to briefly uh, introduce a new concept of grace that we don't often think about. We know that grace is God's kindness shown to us that we don't deserve. By definition, grace is a kindness shown that we don't deserve. So the fact that we have salvation at all is only because of God's grace. But what he says here is that when we trust in Christ, We have, some translations say, access to this grace. Others say an introduction into this grace in which you stand. Basically, what Paul is trying to say is that this grace of God is a realm in which we enter into. And that's important because what we're going to see in this chapter when he says that we are dead to sin and free from sin, he doesn't mean that we now will never sin again. That's listing out our sins one by one, the deeds that we do. But when it talks about being dead to sin, there's some principle or or it's hard to find the right word. But I'm just going to use principle because that's the way I've seen other people use it uh, in the books and commentaries I was reading. Right? The principle of sin is that thing that keeps us a slave to sin as we live life. It reigns over us. It says sin reigns over us. That doesn't mean that if I lie, my lie reigns over me. No, there is this principle of sin that keeps me enslaved into failure and shame, and guilt that 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 and, and condemnation and death that reigns over a person in their li- their physical lives, right? And what God is trying to tell us is that He is setting us free from that reign of that thing that principle that dominates our lives from the very beginning the hopelessness that we feel is because sin is like master over us beating us up and death through sin right so um this is the thing he's talking about that realm that 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 principle of 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 sin but now he says listen Because you have been justified and declared righteous, you now have access into a new realm of grace. And he says, "Getting saved is just the introduction." I love that translation. It's our introduction, like coming to the palace, and uh, you've got your invitation, and and you and it tells you that the party is there, and so you knock on the door. And the porter comes and he sees your invitation and says, Oh, by all means, come on in. And you step through the threshold, but then you get start looking around and you're like, Wow, this place is really amazing. I got no business being here. What am I doing here? And so instead of taking part in all that you could in that place, you camp out on the doorstep. And you miss out on all that's there. Now you could, you could enter in. It's yours. You're entitled to it. you were invited, you stepped in, you were introduced. How many of us as Christians have been introduced into this grace that God has brought us into, and we've never entered into experiencing what it could be to live out what it is to be dead to sin and free from sin? This is what he's trying to tell us about. We've been introduced into this grace. And so now he says, look, this is the benefits of it. It's so much better than the life we had. Chapter 5, verse 15, he says that he's... uh, There's a comparison now between Adam and Christ. He says in Adam, verse 15, through his offense, many died. But on the other hand, by God's grace and the gift by that grace through Jesus Christ, the other man, it it abounds to many. So look at the difference. In Christ, hey, we get to die. But now in... Did I say Christ? Whoa. Uh, In Adam... We die. In Christ, we have that gift and life abounding to many. In, in verse 16, through Adam, we receive judgment and condemnation. But the result of God's grace in verse 16 tells us that it results in justification, being declared righteous before God. Verse 17 tells us that through the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, but through the grace of the gift of righteousness, says those ones will reign in life through Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is kind of the summary. As, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And so, uh, verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so through so through one man's obedience, Christ, many will be made righteous. So what do we keep seeing? Through Adam, all of us who've just continued in this sin, it's just mounted up and mounted up and mounted up. He says, "Where sin abounded, verse twenty, grace abounded all the more." So this principle of grace, this realm that we've been brought into, its jurisdiction that we now have a part of and are under in Christ, he says, it superabounds more than sin ever could even have a hope to. And so, as sin, notice verse 21, 521, as sin reigned in death, see how it's, there's this thing that's reigning in death, even so grace now might reign because of Christ through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is what's going on. That we're, we're being taken out of this realm under Adam where sin reigned and brought into this realm under Christ where his grace reigns and so he comes with this question shall we then continue in sin so that grace may abound hey if the more sin piled up we can see how much higher god's grace piles up well hey let's just keep on sinning so we can just see how much greater god's grace is should we do that now paul doesn't actually think that's a good idea but he's supposing and hearing the argument of those who are not in favor of teaching god's grace And listen, you'll see the same thing today. You go read about uh, uh, different commentators, even on some of these passages, and you'll see people that we generally highly respect their position because they're good Bible teachers, but they will say, listen, you just can't go telling everybody that that God's grace is free because they're going to abuse that. You're just basically telling people it's okay to keep on sinning. It's okay to to, to, to be immoral. It's okay to just keep on doing those things because, hey, God's going to cover it anyway. Don't worry about it. Is that what God's trying to say here? No. He's saying, listen, when you get a grip on this, you're not going to want to live in sin anymore. You're going to enjoy and appreciate and value the grace that you've been brought into, and your love for Christ will keep you from that. Progressively, none of us do it perfectly, right? So he says, shall we then continue in, grace so that the, in sin so that this grace may abound? No way. And um, can I put a plug in for translations here? I remember my first time getting a new Bible. I was studying Greek at Bible school, and so uh, someone told me that the New American Standard was a more of a literal word-for-word translation, and I grew up on the King James. And, um, and so uh, it was weird for me to start learning and memorizing and studying out of a different translation. I remember coming to this passage... And it said, uh, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I think the New American Standard says, may it never be. New, New King James says, certainly not. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I've heard tr- all these arguments about translations. Why would they change, God forbid, to certainly not? I mean, this is, why would you weaken such a phrase? I mean, everyone can understand that. God forbid. Yeah, he, he does forbid. I do, too. Then I looked at the translation from the Greek, and you know what the Greek actually says? Never may it be. The the word for God's not even there. Now, I understand what he means by God forbid, but listen, it was not a good translation. It's not the word is actually there, right? So, So there is no perfect English Bible. There's renderings. The Greek is such a complicated or I should say detailed language that sometimes it's hard to express. And so one translation can help us to understand a little bit more than the other. It's helpful for us together to be doing this comparing, right? But he says, listen, we should never do this. Certainly not should we continue in sin so that grace may abound. Um, how is it who, that we who are dead to sin should live any longer in it? There's the first time that's mentioned, right? Being dead in sin. He pronounces it to be so. If you're a believer, he says, you have died to sin. Now, how can you continue living in that, knowing what Christ has done for you? Or, verse 3, do you not know? Hmm. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So, okay, he's going on through this whole concept of baptism. I meant to tell you, there was a couple words that we're going to see repeated here. Not only is grace one of them, baptism is one. Knowing, or know, is the other repeated word. Uh, The other command, it's only there, I think, once. Reckon. We'll come back and talk about that. But then also to present or yield, depending on your translation. That one's repeated a lot also. So that's going to be our flow of thought as we look at how Paul was developing his argument. He starts off with this picture of baptism. He wants us to know some things. And because of that, reckon some things and then present ourselves to God and to righteousness for his purposes. Now, you see, I've got some illustrational stuff here. Um, I want to talk about baptism today. We use the word a lot, don't we? And there's different kinds of baptism. But what does the word actually mean? It's hard for us to wrap around it because what they did, the original word for ba- in the Greek was baptizo, and they didn't really have a word for that in English, so they just kind of transferred the Greek and made it an English word. We do that in Spanglish sometimes, right? Um, we just kind of make it a, a Spanish word and... and, and um, or vice versa, but we haven't really explained what it is. We just use the word and hope people understand. Well, that's kind of what they did with baptism. But it comes from a, 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 a word, bapto, that, that means to dip or to place something into. So what I want to do today is talk a little bit about what is happening in the baptism that Paul's talking about here. So he in baptism, I'm going to take this piece of ice and I'm going to baptize it. I'm going to place it into my pitcher of water. It has now been baptized. It's been placed into the pitcher of water. And that's one aspect of the word baptism that we are going to talk about in regards to us in Christ, being placed into something. But there's another way that this word has been used, and uh, I think it's Strong's Concordance that tells us that in the early Greek days, uh, they would also use it for when they would take a piece of material and put it into a dye. So I'm going to... It's not Kool-Aid, so no one come up here and drink that, okay? Now, you see, I've got this pitcher full of dye, and I've got this paper towel. What color is my paper towel? White, right? Now, when I baptize my paper towel into the dye... Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm going to place it into, right? But see, there's something else that happens when you baptize, is that there is a union that takes place. There's a uniting of my white paper towel and the red dye, so that as I take my towel back out, I no longer have just red dye or white paper towel. I have red paper towel. They have been united in the process of baptizing, right? So, this being the case, we have some very powerful ramifications, right? If, for example, um, if I were to take this uh, 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 paper towel, wherever I carry it, the die goes, right? Wherever the die goes, the paper goes. They are united together. Uh, and, and so... Uh, That is the idea that Paul wants us to be aware of as we're reading through our text here in Romans chapter 6. He says, look, how are we going to keep living in sin if we've been made dead to sin? He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus? Wow, that happened fast. My ice cube, which was baptized or placed into my pitcher of water, it has now fully assimilated into this pitcher. You could not find or extract my ice cube anymore because it has become one with everything else that is in here with the molecules of water, right? Now, when you turn to Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve 13, I'd like you to turn there because we don't really look at it very often, but th- listen to the words that Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. And I'd like to just make mention that this is not a group of Christians that are known for being the most upright standing citizens in the world, right? They're rebuked for all kinds of sinfulness. And in fact, earlier in the book, he argued that, uh, hey, I didn't come to baptize these people with water baptism. I came to preach the gospel. Other people did that. It wasn't a big thing on Paul's list to make sure that he baptized them, but they were baptized, water baptized by others. But in this chapter, he's not talking about water baptism. He says, verse uh, um, 12 and 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So every believer is said to be a part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head. All the believers make up his body. Verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. You see that by the one spirit of God, some Christians were baptized into that one body, right? No, all, all have been made baptized into that one body, have been made to drink of the one spirit. Look, the reason I believe that Romans 6 is not talking about water baptism is because the things that we're going to see here in this passage, he's arguing, because you have been baptized, these things are true of you. If you substitute the idea of water baptism in here, and you're a believer in Christ who's never been baptized, then these things are not true of you, because you weren't baptized. And you're in a pretty desperate situation. But he's speaking in this passage in Romans of the baptism spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12, where when a believer comes to Christ, the Spirit of God baptizes or places him into the body of Christ, where he becomes one with all other believers, inseparably united with Christ. So much so that in that union, look what happens. Woo! I want red dye everywhere. Um, let's go on. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? i got to bring my Bible over here. All right. So I'm going to go back to this. I'm putting myself into Christ. All right. I'm putting the paper towel back in the die representing a person who comes to Christ and how they are now baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And this is going to be my grave, okay? And uh, the text said that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What happened to Christ? When he came out of the grave, he lived a new life after the grave that is a never-ending life. And the Bible will go on to say that death now has no uh, mastery or dominion over him. And we're going to see that means, therefore, that it has none, no dominion over us also because wherever Christ goes, we go because we've been united with Him. This is powerful. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Isn't that amazing? Listen, so that means that just as when we go to a funeral and we see the body there, You know, the the law's not going to come try to make him pay another $50 for some fine from his parking tickets. It's got no jurisdiction over him anymore. Death severs all of your ties to your obligations in this life. And so because we could never pay that penalty ourselves we could never do what needed to be done god devised this genius plan that we could be placed into christ so that wherever he goes we go both to death as well as resurrection and now since sin no more has dominion over him it no more has dominion over us because we've been united with christ Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin how many times? Once for all. But the life that he lives, he now lives to God. So here's what Paul's been saying the whole time. Listen, know this. Be assured that this is true of you. If you truly put your trust in Christ, this is true of you because that's what the Spirit of God did when you trusted in him. He put you into the body of Christ and he has united you together with him so that you are now inseparably linked with Christ forever. That's grace. That's grace. And as we're going to see in the last half of this chapter, yes, can we still sin? Yes. Is there any sin that we can do that would separate us again from Christ? No. Chapter 8 makes that clear. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor, nor, um, uh, Power. nor, yes, pr- powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ's righteousness has been imputed Put on our account, we've been united with him. So that when when the Father saw Jesus dying there in the grave, he saw us there with him. When he sees us walking in this life, he sees the righteousness of Christ in us. So that where Christ goes, I go. Where I go, Christ goes. We're united with him. So three times over, Paul says, get this, knowing this is true. This is the purpose of what God did it for. Why is that? So that now we should no longer, verse 4, walk. um, I'm sorry. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we also should walk in newness of life. His purpose was so that we would now walk like Christ with a new life after death. Death no longer having dominion over us. Verse 6. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And verse 9, since Christ died um, and has been raised from the dead, death no longer has dominion over him. So, verse 10, he died to sin once for all, and now he lives to God. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he says in verse 10, as true of Christ, that he's dead to sin and now lives to God, the Bible says, now you, knowing that all this is true, reckon it so for yourself. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Now, what does he mean by reckon? It's not like my grandma used to say, who's from South Carolina, and you ask her a question, she said, well, I reckon so. That's kind of, well, maybe I think that might be kind. No, 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 no. Here's what he means, right? The word reckon is the same word that you'll find about 10 times in chapter 4 where it says imputed or accounted to them. So what does he say in chapter 4? He says that when Abraham believed God, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Those of you who are accountants love this, don't you, right? You write it down because that's what it is. It's on the record. It's on the account, right? So God put it on Abraham's account that he believed God and now he's considered righteous before God. Verse four, not to him who, not to him who works, the wages are not counted or reckoned as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, verse five, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted For righteousness. This is all accounting stuff. This is, you you put it down in the record books because that's what it is. We do the same thing, right? When when you go, well, we don't write checks very often anymore, do we? But in the day when we wrote checks, we would take out that little book and we would know in our minds, how much money do I have in that account? Or at least we'd have a rough guess. (laughs) And if we knew the amount then we would, with confidence, sign our name on the check saying, okay, here's my $120, there it is. Because we would, we would know the accounting and we would act on that accounting. We would, be, we would have the confidence of mind to consider it okay to sign that check. Because we reckoned it to be so. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. This is the importance of what we know. Satan wants to keep us ignorant so he can keep us impotent, meaning without strength. How many times have we sinned, individual act, and Satan comes along and wants to accuse us, condemn us, bring us to shame and guilt, and just defeat? And something comes along and we want to pray for God's help, and yet we don't feel confident to reach out to God because of, oh, look what I did. Uh, Listen. The Bible says you are dead to sin. You've been set free from its reign over you. Sin has no business tying you down anymore. You've been set free because you've been united with Christ. So reckon it to be so. Listen, this, I was a perfectionist, a shy person who, who didn't, I didn't really have a daily relationship with God. And so my idea of trying to grow in Christ was just try harder, chapters 12 through 16. And with all my trying, I still felt defeated all the time. Because what does it tell us in chapter 3, right? Through the deeds of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I just saw all the more how much I was failing and I was defeated. And then one day I was reading First 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'd already confessed whatever sin I had done like 20 times. And uh, I still felt condemned and dirty. And, and uh, it was almost like God just put the question in my mind. And he said, Dave, are you more righteous than I am? Are you more holy than I am? Because my word says, if you confess that sin, I am faithful. And I'm just to forgive you and to cleanse you of that unrighteousness. So you've already confessed it so many times, I've already forgiven you. So why are you holding against yourself? You think you're more holy than I am? Well, I knew that wasn't true. But it was hard. You know what I had to do? Reckon it to be true. I know now what God's word says. I have to bank on that. I have to tell my emotions, I know you still feel dirty, but God says he's forgiven you. God says it's cleansed. And so I just had to say, well, God, thank you. I don't really feel like it right now, but that's what your word says, and I believe it, so thank you. And you know, emotions sometimes take a long time to get on board. But he didn't tell us, now, he didn't tell us to ignore our emotions. Listen, it's it's my emotions that told me I was guilty. I needed to listen to them, but I also needed to keep them in their place. So, God says, this is true. You were united with Christ. Reckon it to be so. How are you doing on your own reckoning? Because we all need it. It's by faith, believing what God said, and considering it truly to be true. And when we do that, that's where this last part of the chapter becomes transforming. Because now he says, look, now... Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. That was verse 12. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He says, look, okay, so you grew up your whole entire life with an operating system dominated by sin. And as things happen to you, you just tried to figure out how to operate with that sin and figure out a way to get by. And we all have these weird ways that we try to make life work outside of Christ. But that's our old operating system. And what he's saying is Christ has now downloaded a new operating system. I think you could do this on a Mac, right? Like you can actually run PC Windows on a Mac, even though it's still got the other operating system on there, you can run the other, right? So you, so we have to make some choices. Which operating system are we going to operate on? I remember one of our computers was having problems, and Dave Thompson told us, well, you know, you could just put uh, um, uh, uh, Linux on there, and it'll run better because you got this old thing, and it's much more, uh, and I, I, oh, well, this thing's not doing very good now. It's overwhelmed. Not, not any, Well, let me try it. So I put the new operating system on there and uh, tried it for a couple of weeks, and felt like I wasn't getting anywhere, and you know what I did? I gave up. Uh, going back to the old one, it seemed to work better. How many times do we do that as a Christian? He set us free from the old operating system, so we're no longer shackled to sin under its dominance. He tells us, reckon it to be, reckon it to be true so that you can now stop presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but now you're free to present yourself to God. And live like Christ as being alive from the dead. As instruments of righteousness to God. We try it. Maybe it's not. we're not as familiar with how to live that way. It feels uncomfortable because we live for 40 years some other way. And we give up. But how shall we who have died to sin continue to live in it? We shouldn't. So he tells us, verse 14, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. You've been released from that old law under sin. Now you're under grace. Shall we, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? No, certainly not. Here's verse 16. I wanted to get this. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. We're going to be slaves of someone. We're set free from sin, but it's in order that we can be a slave to Christ. And if we're not slave to Christ, we're going back to sin. Uh, You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You're either going to love the one, hate the other, or be loyal to one, despise the other, but you can't do it. So, which one are we serving? To whomever we submit ourselves to obey. That's who were slaves too now it 's interesting he always speaks of the believer in the rest of his passage as already having been though you were past tense slaves of sin, you have been set free you have been uh, you have died to sin once for all. The shackles are off, and now we 've been united with Christ, but you know by his grace, he allows us to continue to choose. And sometimes we run back to the old operating system. But look where it leads us. Verse 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Wow. If We submit ourselves to be slaves of sin. We get uncleanness, lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin... Where, verse 21 is what I was looking for. for. what fruit did you have then in the things which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Shame and death is what we got when we submitted ourselves to that reign of sin. But now, in Christ, what does he say? Verse 19, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verse 22, for having now been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So we have lawlessness, uncleanness, death, or we have holiness, eternal life. What a difference. How can we live that? Here's the three words. Know where you really stand with Christ. You're united with Him. Reckon it to be true. Bank on it with all you've got. Believe what God says. Count it to be true. Just like an accountant who writes it down in the books. And then, we will have the freedom and confidence to keep presenting ourselves to God. Now, there's one thing I just want to comment on, the the terminology in this chapter. And uh, our English translations often do this, where they try to put one English word for one Greek word. And so sometimes we lose on some of the tenses of the original language. Uh, Coming back here to verse... Chapter six, verses twelve and thirteen. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Right? It sounds like, in one decision, we just lose everything. Or, but listen to the, the way that literally translates: says, "Do not constantly allow sin to reign in your mortal body, so that you are constantly obeying its lusts." Neither constantly yield your members of your body as weapons or tools of unrighteousness to sin, but once and for all yield yourselves to God. It's a, it's a battle, a daily minute-by-minute minute battle. Some will win, some we don't. But what God wants to do is in that individual moment, show us. You chose the old operating system. Now confess it and turn back to Christ. You've already been, you've already been made. Slaves of God, and so turn back to Him, and it's a it, it's it's a spiritual battle. One Corinthians ten says, or two Corinthians ten, that the weapons of warfare are not carnal or earthly, but spiritual, for the tearing down of fortresses. And so, what does He say to do? To take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. One thought, one decision at a time. And what I'm finding in my own life is that it's often after I've already blown, it, it's ah, oh, I did it again. So now I confess and I go back. But we're working to get back to where in the moment I see it and then before the moment so that I'm no longer walking in the old operating system under sin, presenting my members as slaves of sin, but now slaves of righteousness. This is what God has called us into, not to give us more rules, but look how he did it. He united us with Christ. And where Christ has gone, we have gone and will go. And we will experience the very fullest, even to the resurrection, in a soon coming day. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters today while we wrestle with the very confusing at times and uh, and can lead us in the wrong direction as we try to apply it in our lives. But, Lord, we just want to say thank you that in your wisdom you came up with a way to do what we could not do. To unite us to Christ. Lord, thanks for that. We actually get the credit of having died there on that cross without ever having had to to receive a nail in our hands. But Christ did it for us, and we're united with him. And, Lord, it, we, we are not happy about the ways in which we still give in to the temptations and sin around us. But we thank you that that we don't have to live under that dominion anymore, that you've set us free from sin, and that we are actually dead to it. It has no rights to hold on to us anymore. And so, Lord, help us to really know and believe that and reckon it to be true that we might present ourselves to you and uh, let you transform us as you uh, make us more like your son day by day. I want to thank you for um, for the truth of your word and for the chance for us to be able to uh, consider this today. Lord, would you help us now as we walk out these doors to live it? And for those of us, uh, Lord, if there's anyone here who's never experienced that, I pray that, that the thirsting of their soul as they struggle to try to be released from that reign of sin in their lives, Lord, that, that they would see the futility of it and turn to you to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, today, that they may experience forgiveness and everlasting life by your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name.